OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We are currently running winter lunchtime on-site sessions discussing the superficial and ortho-voltage treatment portfolio that we distribute for WOMED, owned by Baybig. This comprehensive KV unit portfolio ranges from energies of 50 to 300 KV with excellent patient and staff safety features and we offer an incredible service and support package for your engineering team to ensure a smooth and efficient service for your patients. Please do get in touch if you require further information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name is Laura and I work at Convensis as a partnerships manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 79. My name is Jane McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Naman Jolka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a huge thank you to our last guest, Chris Lenger, who talked about her experience of cancer treatment, the charity she started called Copperfield, and also talking about death and dying. So if you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Mary Huckle, who will be discussing her experience of living with and beyond cancer. So welcome, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Mary, we um, know you very well through Instagram. You're you're um, a bit of a celeb on the social media side of things. So for anyone who doesn't know you, do you mind kind of introducing yourself, please? Yes. So um, I'm a, a personal trainer and a Pilates instructor. First and foremost, I'd like to put that in. Um, I think it's quite important to actually, you know, say what I do rather than, the, you know, cancer taking over my the, the, the entire podcast. But first and foremost, you know, that's my job. Um, but um, I was first diagnosed with cancer in 2007. And um, then I was diagnosed with secondary breast cancer in 2014. Um, that's me in a nutshell. I'm married with three grown-up children um, and I've got a granddaughter as well now. So that's really exciting for our family. I think that's me in a nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) Mary, what got you into PT? Is that something you'd always kind of, that was your career pathway? Well, when I I left school, um, I didn't go to university. I did have a couple of places, but I just didn't fancy going in the end. Um, And I went straight into banking (laughs) as um, Lots of people did in those days, just went straight into banking. Um, it was just a, you know, a safe option, but it was never really my, you know, my, my chosen, you know, sort of like career path, so to speak. Um, health and fitness has always been on my radar. 
from a very young age. I was the, the I was the annoying person at school who actually liked PE. Um, so um, I was lucky enough to have a group of friends, and we all liked PE. <laughs> um, we were all in the sort of, you know all in the school teams that sort of thing. So it's yeah, I've just I've just loved everything about health and fitness from a very early age. And after doing quite a few years in banking and finance, um, I finally got the chance to go into health and fitness and do my exercise to music exam and then go on to do my PT qualifications. And then my Pilates qualifications came a little bit later down the road. So that, yeah, that's how I... So it's really, it's just, it was there from the start, really. Yeah, I was definitely that child that didn't bunk off cross country. They'd be like, what, you actually run <laughs> run, all, run all the way around? You didn't cut by the canal? I was like, no, I've run it all. Whereas everyone else would be like behind a bike shed hiding. Oh, no, it's just, <laughs> yeah, and, and you, you, yeah, you get really sort of like hated for that at school, don't you? Because a lot, lots of girls try to get out of PE at the earliest, you know, opportunity, at every opportunity, but... Yeah, we were quite, um, yeah, I was always up for it. <laughs> I think my parents just used it, used it as free childcare, to be honest. Get Joe involved in as many sports as possible and we don't have to pay for the expensive childcare. Really, that's a really good move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Mary, do you mind talking to us about kind of your diagnosis and, you know, how you discovered that you had cancer, what your, your pathway was? Yeah, so I mean, like I said before, I did actually get diagnosed in 2007 and it was just basically through finding a lump in my right breast. Um, I was one of these people that actually did check my breast regularly Um, and yeah, I just found a pea-sized lump and sort of like deliberated over it for a few weeks and then my husband was like, just for goodness sake, just go and get it sorted out, it's never going to be anything to worry about just go and get it looked at so that's what I did I ended up at the one-stop breast clinic and they diagnosed me a week later with hormone receptive and HER2 negative breast cancer um bit of a shock because I didn't smoke I didn't drink I was very healthy actually I was probably at my healthiest at that time as well you know I was working back to back with PT clients and classes and I was even working in schools, doing children's fitness at the time as well. I suppose the only thing that I would say is that I was, I suppose it was quite stressful at times, but I was busy and loving my work. You know, that was the main thing. And and, and I was healthy. So it was a real shock, you know, to be diagnosed. And then I was on, um, I had a full radical mastectomy. I'd a, I had a full, full axilla clearance as well. So I had all my lymph nodes taken out of my right hand side. And then I had um, chemotherapy for six months. I was on um, FEC, FEC, and then docetaxel. So four four of each of those. And then I went on to have um, tamoxifen for five years. And I actually want, well, my oncologist wanted me to stay on tamoxifen for 10 years. But I just, I didn't want to do that. He gave me a choice. So I came off of it. Um, and then I think it was like between one and two years later, I was diagnosed with secondary breast cancer. And in my mind, I think, you know, should I have been on that tamoxifen for 10 years? But then I thought, you know, I think if it had to happen, it would have happened anyway. It wasn't, I couldn't keep blaming myself for that. 
So yes, so then I started um, the secondary breast cancer pathway, which is completely different to a primary diagnosis. Um, obviously, you know, the, the fears are, st- are always there, even when you're going, th- you know, when you've had your primary treatment and you finish all of that, you still are fearful of a secondary breast cancer diagnosis. But I think once you get diagnosed with secondary breast cancer, it, it's it's a different kind of fear as well. I don't know. It's a little bit more intense. Um, so, yeah, then I've I've been on several treatments to bring you up to date. I've been on five, five or six lines of chemotherapy already. And um, it's yeah, it's quite scary at times. <laughs> um, I've actually I know this won't come, go, go out for a couple of weeks, but I actually had my scan results as well this evening on this this morning I should say and um, they weren't very good they weren't very positive I've had more progression in my liver and in my bones so we are looking at well I am what they call myelosuppressive now so I'm very sort of like very prone to my bone marrow not behaving in fact my bone marrow has been flattened quite a lot recently so we are I mean I'm perhaps looking for a second opinion or I'm looking at a clinical trial as well so that's yes yeah, it's not it's not that positive at the moment but I'm trying to stay positive I think you have to always keep looking on the positive side and just say never never say never basically and something will come up <laughs> soon thank you for sharing especially if it's obviously you've only found out recently what's going on probably a lot of different thoughts going through your head yeah it's been a funny old day it's been a, you know, I just, um, yeah, that I just want to stay positive and just sort of like keep focused. And um, I'm very much one for doing my own research and, and whatever and, and, you know, advocating for, for treatment and for the right pathway, whatever that may be. So I'm just going to, I've had my, done my little list today of what I have to do. So I just have to focus on that. That's good. I think it's good to try and have a plan of action. I think yeah. as healthcare professionals as well, we always throw whatever we can at you. Yeah. And then sometimes patients feel that they have to figure out, you know, how to navigate it as well in the background. Yeah, exactly. I think it's it's really difficult to um when you're sort of like when you're given that sort of like sort of information when you're given that information, it's it's difficult to to really focus and to get back on track with, with that focus as well because of you're you're sort of like blindsided, aren't you, by by what what you've been told? And I think, you know, I've sort of like been in scary situations before, you know, since being diagnosed with secondary breast cancer. But I think this time it's a little bit different. It's definitely hitting different because I know that I'm running out of options basically, and knowing that my blood marrow, my blood marrow, my bone marrow, is um is suffering is not very good because whatever treatment they put me on whatever treatment I'm whatever chemotherapy I'm put on I know that it's going to be difficult if it's if it's one that really hits hits the bone marrow so we'll see (laughs) Mary how have you found the support that you've had from healthcare professionals um I've been quite lucky um I I mean I I'm actually a private patient and I, I say that with a little bit with with a little bit of a tongue in cheek thing, really, with, a, you know, because I think it has its, it has its downsides as well, being a private patient. 
I think I've gone through lots of treatment lines because of that, to be honest with you. <laughs> because I think every time I've had progression, I've changed treatments. And when I think back <clears throat> now, I just think maybe perhaps, you know, it's, I think it's kept me in good stead in the fact that I've been monitored really closely in all the time that I've, since I was, by, since I was diagnosed, basically. My oncologist has never, ever um, discharged me. And because I think I was, I was a grade three when I was first diagnosed as well, I think I've always found comfort in the fact that he's never discharged me you know, the the cancer being an aggressive type. Um, but then the flip side of that is that every time I've had progression, he has changed my, my treatment, you know, quite rapidly. And I think I think now, nowadays, I should say, because it was 15 years ago when I was diagnosed, over 15 years ago, I think nowadays oncologists maybe try and keep you on, on a treatment a bit a bit longer, perhaps, even when you've had maybe some progression just to sort of like see, you know, what happens if it's just like a little bit of a glitch. So, yeah, I mean, private NHS, big differences. But I just think it's, um, yeah, there are downsides to private as well. And of course, people think that it's so easy to get onto treatments. And it's not always that easy. You always have to have things approved, you know, by the insurance company. And they're not always very willing to play ball. I would like to add that I was first, I, I, it wasn't through work or anything. that I've got private medical insurance. I've, I've, I've got it through, um, through just go, walking into Boots about 17 years ago. And they were doing a special, a special offer with Vitality. It was, it was called Pru Health at, at the time. And being a, a personal trainer, I thought, oh, excellent, because this is so easy. You know, the more steps you take the more steps you do with your clients and this and that and the other you know you can get points towards your premium and that sort of thing and I just it was almost like a bit of a a game for me you know the premiums are so cheap at the time and I was like clocking up my points every day <laughs> I was like doing about 20,000 steps every day with clients so it was like yeah this is great Mary they'd have yeah, hated you, can... you they'd have been like know, oh she's she's getting all the discounts she's getting a Costa coffee she's yes. getting a Champney stays <laughs> yeah exactly getting the, the cinema you know tickets and things like that and it was I'm it, actually still with them to this day but obviously my premiums aren't you know 30 pounds anymore they're a lot more expensive it's more like another mortgage now um, but it's one thing that we've always said that I'd never give up is you know is the the the, the private medical the, the medical insurance so I just wanted to put that out there because I just think sometimes people think oh you know private you know she must be minted but I'm not I'm not at all it's like um it's just yeah, it was just the way it worked out at the time for me walking into boots that day <laughs> um yes what was your original what was the original question sorry Oh yes, how I've how I've been treated by the by my team and by my yeah I've never been treated badly you know I've been treated really well but I know the differences between private and NHS and that's why I I advocate um, passionately you know for the NHS and for my friends that are on NHS treatment and I can see the disparities and the um, the differences. 
between the, the care. Yes, it's a little bit of, it's a bit very debatable, really. NHS and private. Bit tongue in cheek, Mary, but are the chairs comfier in private chemo wards? Mm. Yeah, they are. You you know you're in a room by yourself and you're you've got a, you've got a TV and you know you've got copious amounts of tea and coffee and biscuits and yeah, we do tea and biscuits. You know. and it's the, <laughs> the like the coffee is the instant coffee which you could probably tar a roof with, but you know at least it, it gives you the caffeine. I think pump. some NHS <laughs> roofs are tarred with it, aren't they? <laughs> I know. Do you know what though? It's like it's funny we should we should talk about NHS and private because. I see. I often see lots of NHS, um, like hospitals and and centres and cancer centres in particular, that are really well equipped compared to private. I don't know why that is, but it's almost like, you know, I mean, even the hospital that I'm at, some of the equipment they use, I know, is quite old. Whereas a lot of the NHS hospitals are really sort of like, you know, have got really up to date equipment. Even, you know, up-to-date, you know, PET CT scanners and things like that. It's just, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, as I say, it's quite debatable. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> yeah, a whole podcast you... series by itself. Oh, absolutely. Trust me, I'm sure absolutely. Joe and I have ample things we could we could add in and probably get in a lot of trouble bet. for getting political, but... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mary... Um, can I take you back to when you were first diagnosed? Um, obviously, you said yes. you didn't drink, you didn't smoke, rec- no recreational drugs, you had a healthy lifestyle, etc. Mm-hmm. Lots of patients that I speak to, similar situations, especially for breast cancer, they'll come and they'll have treatment. And when I see them for review, they'll say, well, I was really healthy, I don't understand why. How did you find navigating that thought process of why me, if I haven't done anything almost? So I'm, this isn't me saying that is my, what you're thinking, but one of my patients has said, like, why have I deserved this? But I know I've, mm. I've worked so hard to be healthy. Yes, I mean, it's, you know, you can sort of like go over it in your mind over and over again. And I often, I often think, well, crikey, I must have been some sort of like sewer rat in my past lifetime or something. Or what have I done to, you know, what have I done in my to deserve this um and I suppose it do, that does cross your mind but to be honest with you I just didn't I just don't I just don't labor that thought very much I just have to sort of like to think about you know just moving forward um and I think you know there are you know various factors that contribute to being diagnosed with cancer I mean we know that alcohol for example or being overweight or um you know smoking etc etc can contribute but then we also know that like like we've just said that there are many healthy people that get diagnosed you know many many um i i personally think that stress isn't helpful i think stress i think is could be a contributing factor but then i've heard of like research being done into it and nothing's ever come of you know stress being you know being a factor but you know, in the years preceding my diagnosis, I was quite stressed um, uh, about, you know, different things. So I don't know. It's it's a difficult one. But I don't ever think, you know, I don't I wouldn't wish this upon anyone else. And I think it's it's almost like a bit selfish to think unfair to think why what you know, why me? You know, people. People tell you all different things, don't they? Oh, you were, 
you know, you're, you're, you were dealt that card because you're quite strong and you're quite resilient. It's just like, it's crazy. It's but, the one yeah, thing I don't... not to t- say to a cancer patient. I know, it? but people have said that to me. Honestly, I've heard that quite a few times, but, and it makes you think, mm, not really. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I am quite resilient. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I'm not, I'm not sort of like superhuman, but I think I am quite resilient mentally and both physically. I think being healthy has kept me in really good stead over the years. Um, and I think being healthy and having that sort of like mindset does make you more resilient mentally as well. Um, so I, I do believe in that. That was going to be my next but, question, yeah. actually, was, oh, was, was it? well, okay. just in terms of the fact that you are externally, when you, you kind of see you on social media, you're very active, you're promoting physical fitness and you know you're talking about the mental fitness as well and I just you know I'm intrigued to know how do you continue with that when you have chemotherapy side effects when you're really struggling because you're coming to to terms Mm. with a diagnosis or bad news or scansiety you know how do you kind of think actually I'm still going to get up I'm still going to do some pilates this morning yeah I think it's just um, it's just adapting, really, you know, acceptance and adaptations um, and, and just doing what you can on a daily basis. I mean, I have really um, I have really I, ha- I have really felt the the effects of all the chemotherapies I've had over the years on my body. The last like couple of years have been quite brutal um, and I've, I have felt the difference. And it has affected my work to a, to quite a large extent recently, um, and not so much because of what I can't do, but mainly because cancer's taken up so much of my time recently, and I'm very I'm I'm a stickler for being sort of like professional and being quite punctual and things like that, and I just hate to let people down, and I've and you know recently I just feel I just feel like I'm not reliable enough for my clients to. You know, I might, I've got classes, you know, scheduled, but then at the very last minute, I might have to go in and have a scan or a blood test or, and that's how it's been recently. And that's what I don't like. I don't like that part of it. But personally, you know, I deal with it. I just make sure that I just do something every day, even if it's just lying on the mat <laughs> and just moving my legs around a few times and just, you know, doing, doing a bit of ab work. But I do try and do something you know daily even or going out for a walk or just doing something you know I'm actually I'm actually quite lucky that I'm not really in in pain you know I don't really although I've got you know loads of mets literally up and down my spine you know cervical thoracic lumbar pelvic um in my sacrum even I just I you know I'm actually I think and I think that's Pilates that's kept me that's kept me like really, I suppose the muscles around the spine get strengthened with Pilates as well. And the core is absolutely crucial to all our movements, you know, on a daily basis. And and I feel quite lucky, quite fortunate that I've been doing that for so many years. And, and it's really, you know, and as I say, it's kept me in good stead. So I think as long as I'm sort of like not in pain and I can keep moving, I'm I'm just going to keep doing something. Yeah, so I'm already sort of like thinking in my mind how I can 
change things work-wise, you know, so that I can still service my clients and whatever. Yeah. I'm a little bit nutty like that. (laughs) I think it's good. I mean, obviously you're trying to take the uncertainty away, give yourself a bit of structure Mm. and something to, as you said, you know, keep positive, keep moving forward, that sort of thing. It's the best distraction. I mean, exercise, obviously, it's, you know, it's been proven to sort of like to help, um, you know, in, in different areas. And but it, for, for me, my work has always been a, a distraction and, the, you know, the, the best satisfaction over the years. So it's, um, it's, it's very, uh, it's quite special to me. Something you've mentioned, Mary, on your social media um, is around sort of different terminology that's used for someone who has a secondary cancer diagnosis and how I think kind of we as healthcare professionals need to approach it or the terminology. Um, Obviously, you've discussed a bit about how you've been navigating having secondary cancer, but um, I don't know, for healthcare professionals that are listening, how can we make things a bit more open and honest? Um, It's really interesting because I, I... Recently, did like um, um, I recently was invited to Ten Downing Street to a, a breakfast reception, and there were lots of oncologists there, breast surgeons, um, you know, people, lots of different people from the NHS were there, and there were sort of like health ministers there, and it was quite interesting in the in the fact that you know, I got to speak to an oncologist, and you know, we talked about this sort of thing and how you know what. And he was like, what would you what would you say to me that, you know, as an oncologist sort of thing? And I said, look, look I, mean, I think one of the things we have to do, we have to do is to make the patient, um, you know, clinician relationship a lot easier. Um, I think a lot of oncologists don't like giving out bad news. And, and I think for patients for primary patients in particular we're you know we're not given the red flags when we when we really should be advised I think it's a duty of care but and the fact that they don't like giving out bad news is irrelevant I think we just need to really close the gap between primary and secondary breast cancer um and so I would you know my my advice I can't say advice because that sounds really really sort of like but my I suppose yeah my advice to my oncologist for example would be to be completely honest to be up front from day one and to try and maybe sort of like you know maybe not send people off you know discharge them and say to them like you know go and live your life and and enjoy it because you're going to be fine because actually there are one in three women that get diagnosed with secondary breast cancer and um I just find that wrong that people aren't being told everything when they should be completely you know advised correctly and in terms Mary of your side effects do you think you were told about all the side effects that you might get whilst you were having the treatment but as well as obviously those side effects that maybe you had later on um I was I was advised of side effects definitely um you know that I think I mean my oncologist has always been very, very good in the in in the way that he's always given me the information about side effects, that sort of thing. Um, but it was the, it was the actual is the, when we will talk about red flags for secondary breast cancer. Is that what you mean, Joe? 
the actual red flag symptoms. Yeah. So he, he basically never discharged me, but he kept saying to me, if you don't feel right, if you, if you feel pain anywhere, um, you know, you, you come back straight away. You know, the door's always open. And I think that's that for me was a comfort in itself, the fact that he he was always there for me. But see, I know lots of other people that just get discharged after five years, for example, and then, you know, they're, they're actually out of the system and then it's really hard to get back into it. But he never actually gave me red flags to look out for. He just said, if you don't feel well in any shape or form, then you come back to me. But I suppose that sort of like covers it in a way covers all the red flags in a way so um so I suppose I was advised in a, in a sort of like roundabout way I suppose having that in that ability to be able to talk to your oncologist to say it's just a little niggle but this is what's on my mind yeah. I suppose allows him the opportunity to see whether or not that's a red flag or not whereas I know from yeah. an NHS perspective that doesn't happen exactly. you don't have necessarily that that telephone number that you can phone it's kind of going back through your gp and exactly sometimes that can be what delays things for people absolutely and even gps you know they 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 they, they can make mistakes you know they do if someone goes goes in with back pain and they don't realize that they've been they've had you know a breast cancer they might get sent off to a chiropractor or to a physiotherapist or something and it's actually they should be going straight back to their oncologist you know and getting checked out and getting scanned um it's um it is it is difficult it is it's yeah it's a really it's it's very it's a very oh it's just I feel quite passionately about passionately about that because I just find it so wrong that people aren't given all the information up front um yeah Mary what are the red flags Mm. just for anyone listening so I mean yeah I mean there there are various I mean even between like you know ductal breast cancer and lobular breast cancer there are various red flags to look out for, but, you know, things like headaches, for example, um, any sort of like back pain, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like blurred vision, even. Crikey, like any, any pain, really. I mean, I could, there are a lot, there are long, a long list for lobular and ductal, but I would say, you know, if, check out the infographics um, that MetUp UK have because they're brilliant. You know, they're, you know they, they should be anyone's first port of call if they find anything's hurting, really. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Definitely. just to add with the headaches, if people are having nausea and things like that, um, any, any other oh, things? Oh, yeah, nausea, <laughs> absolutely. Blurred vision, headaches, yeah. Um. Even sort of like being off balance, for example, could be a red flag. You know, be a cough, ongoing coughs, for example, that you know last for sort of like they do say sort of like three weeks or longer. Um, any bone pain, back pain, especially, is um quite is is quite an important one to get checked out. I think it's like you know I. You know, I didn't, when I was diagnosed with secondary breast cancer, I didn't even have any symptoms. I didn't even have any pain. I, you know, I, it was, I was seeing my oncologist every six months at, the t- at that time. And he basically found a lymph node behind my collarbone in the like supraclavicular fossa, just right tucked 
down behind my collarbone. I would never have known. I would never have found that. And then he he sent me off for a PET scan, and then there was um, I had a, a couple of lymph nodes in my chest wall, so it was that mammary chain that was actually infected. And but I, I had no symptoms. I had no pain or anything. And that's also the worrying thing and why people should not really be discharged, especially with an aggressive type of cancer. Um, and he would always, if I ever, I, I, and then going forward, if I did go in and then I had anything sort of like, you know, that happened subsequently after that initial sort of like secondary diagnosis, then I was I was always scanned really quickly. So all the progressions I've ever had have always been be, been picked up really early on. Um, you know, I mean, I've read things where it's been said that actually it doesn't really matter when you get diagnosed with secondary breast cancer, it doesn't make a difference. But actually, I think it makes a huge difference. You know, surely the, the earlier something is picked up, the quicker it can be dealt with. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Mary, how's your family coped with your secondary diagnosis? Has it been different from when you were diagnosed initially? Um, yes. Yeah. When I was first diagnosed, I was supposedly cancer free for like seven years. But, you know, who knows? Obviously, there were cancer cells there just sort of like dormant. But I think I was I was leading, of you know, an, an almost normal life really for seven years after my primary diagnosis and all the treatment was out of the way and you know we I I mean I sort of like thought that it was it was perhaps just a glitch the primary thing that I was going to be fine but then it was always in the back of my mind that my it was actually my breast surgeons and he told me that I had a 95% chance of a non-reoccurrence in five in the first five years um, so that always sort of like maybe just was always in the back of my mind. But in saying that, I was leading the normal life. And as far as my family were concerned, we'd gone through the worst, which was like primary diagnosis. And, we'd, you know, we'd gone through the treatment and whatever together and we were, we, you know, we were fine. But when the secondary breast, secondary breast cancer diagnosis came along, it was a different ball game. And I think you know, you know, all the time I've had, all the times I've had progression, it's just been, you know, is this gonna, is this it, is this, is this the end sort of thing, and and that has taken a huge toll on my my family. I think you know, my parents, bless them, um, you know, took it really hard, and you know, and my kids, my children, you know, my my children were at school when I was first diagnosed and the girl the twins the girls were in primary school and you know and throughout the years you know they've they've had to put up with quite a lot <laughs> um and you know we can all say that we 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 feel guilty about that I think as mothers we want to protect our children but you know when you keep giving them this news all the time I think it's going to affect them in some way yeah definitely has affected them yeah to my husband of course it, it just affects everybody my, my sisters you know yeah everyone we are a very close family anyway so I think it's really I've been really lucky that we are close because I've had you know really good support 
couldn't have asked for better support from my family and even from friends. But I think in a way, sometimes it just makes it a little bit harder when you're really close. So, yeah. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Talking to um, patients who are going through a cancer diagnosis, sometimes they report that relationships change, friendships change, and it's it's just the change in lifestyle overall mm. very rapidly that can sometimes be quite difficult to accept. Um, one of the comments you made earlier really stood out to me around kind of how your life revolves around hospital appointments and I think that's something, especially as a healthcare professional, is very easy for us to forget. So, you know, we'd see cancer patients for their radiotherapy takes 10, 15 minutes. You don't then realise how far has that patient had to travel to that appointment. Um, you know, are they going for bloods later? Are they mm. having to go and, you know, have some complementary therapy because they're dealing emotionally with everything that they're coping with? And I think that that point around your life kind of goes on hold a little bit um, yes. because it, it is just all about getting healthy. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, you know, it's, it's, like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's just not nice when you're at that point where you're literally in and out of hospital, you know, every other day. I mean, I've had weeks where I've like been in hospital like every day of the week, you know, barring Saturday and Sunday, you know, for one reason or another. Um, and it just, you know, it takes over your life. And I think it's really difficult when people say cancer doesn't define me because I just I can't say that. I can't say that now. I can't. Cancer doesn't define you when you're getting on with your life, even with a stage four diagnosis. You can live, you know, a relatively normal in inverted commas life. But I think. Yeah, there, there, there are points where it does define you um, and you have to accept that, I think, in, to even try and move forward. I think you can get you can get stuck um, between, you know, not not accepting and, you know, you keep saying oh, it doesn't define me. It doesn't define me. But yeah, but it it, it, it catches up with you, basically. And so um, that's how it works. But um well, of course it doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not my entire life. I've got even my family, my family and my life, my work is, what I do is my, is my life. It's all, it's all part of it, but, but yeah, but cancer can come along and take over at times. It's your identity, isn't it? Your work, family, all the things that you prioritise to obviously keep you going, as you said, in between all of those hospital appointments. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like, you know, you have to, you do have to live every day, of course. But I just don't, but I'm just like one of these, I can't just live my life and not do whatever I can. I don't, I'm one of these people that won't leave a stone unturned. If if I have to do it, I have to do it, whatever it takes. But I know people that are quite happy just to sort of like, just to be given the news of, of whatever, and they'll just like, go along with it. And, you know, and... And I suppose in a way it's it's I think the people like us, people like me, have to just almost like be a voice for those for those people as well. Um and I, I know that whatever I'm doing in, in this you know, in the self advocacy thing and the patient advocacy thing, it's like you know, I probably won't won't get any benefit from that in my lifetime. But I just I believe in in making the you know 
future generations their lives easier. You know, and I just don't know who it might affect one day. It could be one of my loved ones. And I think it's worth making the effort and, um, you know, doing what you have to do. Exactly. And it's almost a legacy in a way. But I mean, you've talked openly about the, you know, being secondary cancer incurable. Have you approached the conversations about what happens Mm. when the treatment stops? Just well, just myself, yeah, all the time. (laughs) I mean, I'm sort of like, I mean, you know, I actually, I know it's it's silly because I'm laughing. I'm only laughing because I'm just thinking of all the black humour that comes out when um when we talk about you know the end sort of thing. Um, Yeah, I do sort of like I you know I've had conversations with myself about it quite a lot. When it comes to family, not really, um, because I, yeah, I don't think my kids would allow it. <laughs> they just like they just don't want to know. They think that I'm going to live forever, so I'm just going to make them think that way. <laughs> um, I think we all have to think about our mortality. I don't think we can we can beat around the bush, can we? It's you know, there's a lot more out there now on social media, in in particular about death and I think you have to you have to talk about it you have to you know you do have to think about things and I would like to think that you know I'd like to have certain music at my funeral and you know have that certain type of you know coffin and whatever whatever Um, you know I'm quite fussy that way Um, so I think it's those sorts of things we can write down somewhere can't we and we can leave them until the time comes and then family can you know do what they have to do and just uh, you know go along with my wishes but they don't they don't they don't I don't think they have to know that those wishes you know while I'm still sort of like earthside they can have a look at all those things when I'm gone I just don't want to make my I just don't want to make their life any more stressful than what it is to be honest with you I'm very much about you know protecting my children but obviously I have to be honest with them Um, but I do like to you know yeah, I'm. I'm just. I like to be positive, and I like to think. You know, we we still got things to do and places to go, and you know, and and memories to make, and and I don't want to sort of like spoil that. You know, with um all that little too much death talk. <laughs> but yeah, it's um it does. You know, I do. I do. I think my mum died. Um, I think well, it's yeah. Well, it's over a year ago now. Just over a year ago. And I think, you know, seeing what mum had to go through, that's opened my eyes quite a lot in in the fact that I don't want this and I don't want that and I don't want that to happen and I don't want this to happen. You know, that's, 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 I think having someone close to you and going through that experience, you know, I can't really say that I'm actually not frightened of dying anymore. I used to say that. I used to say, I'm not, af- I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of like, I'm not afraid of leaving, you know. I'm afraid of leaving my loved ones. Obviously, that's the biggest thing. But I think it's just all the, it's just the way that people die and, and all that stuff. You know, you'd, it's just not like it is in the movies when they show you when people are dying peacefully. It doesn't always happen that way. You know, death can be quite chaotic. And it was for my mum. And it was just a shock for all of us. And um, I'm still like still sort of like trying to get over that that bit. And I think that's made me think about what I want for myself, you know, when the time comes. 
because I'm a little bit scared of what she had to go through. And I just don't want it to happen to me or to anyone else that I, that I care about or that I, not or to anyone actually, not even people that I care about, but to, to anybody. So, um, you know, I do sort of like, I have been like looking things up and, you know, looking into sort of like certain things. And I, I think it's important to know about that stuff. <laughs> Otherwise it can be quite shocking. <laughs> yeah, I did what I, I wrote quite openly about what, how mum, what mum went through and I, I got so many me- I literally got hundreds of messages from people saying similar things about how it was how everything was a shock to them you know and and how their loved ones did, didn't die peacefully or you know this happened or that happened or I mean Covid had a lot to do with it as well people lost so many loved ones in Covid you know during Covid and um, yeah it was all very it was all very it's all very messy but yeah I like to I like to be organised and have things in order so that's one of the things that we should, we should all work on. I say it's, it's coming across that you were a bit more honest than maybe you thought you'd be about it. Yeah, probably. Maybe I've said too much, but <laughs> that's all right. No, don't never. worry. I, I think it's an important conversation, which we don't normally do enough, or we end up doing it far too late. Um, I think from my experience of talking to patients who are palliative and potentially they die quite recently uh, sorry soon after radiotherapy then the carers or the loved ones will come back and say oh thank you you know while while they were going through it you know you helped doesn't have to be me because we wanted someone else in the review team but you helped us navigate that last few kind of moments and realize what we need to sort out get in get in order and things so yeah it's, it's, a, it's a huge job when somebody dies it's like there's so much to do you know, death admin is just like ongoing. It can go. I mean, we still we're still sorting out mum's affairs, and that's over a year a year ago, um, and it's just horrible. It's just horrible, isn't it, for your loved ones to have to go through all that stuff as well, and and sort out, you know, all the bits and pieces. And yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just don't know why I keep laughing, but <laughs> I think it might be a nervous laugh. <laughs> But um, we've got to. We've got to. Never heard it called death admin before either. No. <laughs> so, no. We've got to. We've got to keep it light, haven't we? You know, at the end of the day, it's, it is a very serious subject. But also, you know, you've we've got to keep it light to a certain extent. Otherwise, you'd we'd be very, very miserable all the time. And that's what not. That's what, if you think of how much planning goes into birth. Absolutely. You know, NCT classes. You know, yeah. you'll get friends together, you'll have a baby shower, you organise how you're going to, you know, ha- what position you're going to be in when you go into labour, what music you're going to have playing and yeah. everything. It's really interesting that we dedicate so much time Absolutely. and resource. And it's such a natural thing, birth. isn't it, to birth, you know, to, to give birth. Yeah. And yet, you know, the, the, I think, I can't remember who called it this, this, but, they, you know, the, they're, the, they're the bookends of our existence, aren't they? you know the birth yeah. and death it's just that's just the way it is it's the way it's the circle of life it's just and yet we are so so frightened of, of death and so frightened to talk about it and uh, yeah definitely people you know should plan more. I think you know there there's there's a lot more conversation out there about it nowadays and I think social media is really opening up um about you know, about the subject and, and and rightly so I think I think you know, like people say, you could be run over by a bus, you know, tomorrow, <laughs> day after or whatever, but you never know what's around the corner. 
Mary, can I just quickly take you back to MetUp UK? Yeah. So I know their obviously their website, their hashtag is I think darker pink. One of the hashtags, yeah, is um darker pink. Yeah, yeah, we we have got quite a few on the go, I think. But yeah, that's one, that's one of them and a really important one actually. There's an interesting thing on the website. Uh, which I read that um, trying to view secondary or metastatic breast cancer as a chronic disease mm-hmm. is that still something of an aim for MetUp UK or for your advocacy work? Absolutely. You know, I think you know the fact that we're not curable is is really is 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 heavy. You know, that's heavy enough. But the fact that our lives are cut short as well is is just really it's just yeah it's. It's unacceptable, really. It's you know we know that breast cancer is, you know, it's the it's the biggest killer of you know women cancer-wise globally, and and yet we just we don't seem to be doing it enough to you know to even contemplate that thirty-one women die every single day. And, and it's an it's an analogy that I use is like can you can you imagine if like we had you know two or three plane crashes every month that killed you know almost a thousand people every month and that's 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 what it is it's, that's how many women are dying every, every single month from you know from secondary breast cancer not from breast cancer but it's secondary and i think we have to really push for drugs you know for more research into into drugs for secondary breast cancer and we we want to prolong our lives and and i think it is it is something that possibly is doable you know we did it for for hiv you know we you know we we for for you know the covid vaccine that was like you know rolled out you know in a matter of like you know months really so i think if we really really put our minds to something we we possibly could do it i mean when you think of all the millions that are ploughed into you know research for cancer um surely there must be some sort of breakthrough but only if we get the invest you know the investment and you know without getting political we do need the government to really step up to the plate and just make a difference especially now with covid in the backdrop of everything and you know we're still trying to get over that still trying to get through the through the backlog of covid um but people are dying every day. And and I always think, well, actually, I mean, the, 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 it's like the clinical trial that I've just been on. You know, the drugs, we can sort of like cross-reference them now as well for different types of cancer. So, you know, why can't we sort of like just just really put lots more research into stage four cancer generally, perhaps? And then I think, you know, things might start to to get a little bit easier but definitely for you know as far as met up uk are concerned we're always advocating for you know better care you know the you know the disparities the the geographical inequalities that still exist even though we've lobbied to parliament and you know done all sorts of things to try and you know get that sorted but you know i mean look at the um the secondary breast cancer audit as well you know, it's taken 15 years to even have that agreed. <laughs> um, and finally, something is being done. But again, it's just taking so long to even, you know, with secondary breast cancer, you know, they only count us when we die. So why does that happen? Why aren't we counted while we're still living? And there has been that 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 recent 
research that's just come out from um, the oncologist Carlo. I, God, you know what? My my parents are Italian. I don't know why I keep trying to say it with an English accent, right? His name is Carlo Palmieri, right? You maybe people would call him Carlo Palmieri. I call him Carlo Palmieri, right? And um, you know he did re- he did research, and the, the the numbers came out as you know there are near sort of like near more well, over fifty seven thousand people living with secondary breast cancer in the UK alone. I mean, that's shocking. That is really shocking. And it's something that we probably have known about. Um, but, you know, we, we need that, 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 that national audit. We need that, those numbers because without the numbers, we can't improve the care. Um, you know, MetUp UK is the patient advocacy group. It is the, you know, we, that's what we work with. You know, we work with advocacy, you know, with advocating on behalf of others and we just want more people to <laughs> advocate with us basically but of course you know we can all do our bit in, as individuals as well you know it just means opening up the conversation with your oncologist it just means having the confidence to speak to to him or to her you know and not be afraid to challenge and that's what I've had to do in the past and it's you know it's thank goodness I did challenge like when I discovered when we discovered the brain mets you know, if I hadn't pushed for that brain scan, then didn't, who knows where I'd be now? You know, and I didn't really have any symptoms. All I, I just challenged my oncologist and said, look, I'm having symptoms, side effects from my, from my chemotherapy. But these symptoms I'm feeling are the same as the side effects for the chemo that I'm having. So how can you tell me that I shouldn't have a brain scan? So... It's things like that that people need to really start talking up about. And, you know, and I always urge people to go to, to PALS as well if they need to. So just try and, you know, get things documented and logged as well. Oh, thanks, Mary. Um, we always ask for top tips at the end of all of our podcasts. So I think you've given some great top tips there um, for patients on how to advocate oh, for yes. themselves. And we'll definitely share everything that you've mentioned so that people can access those resources along with the podcast. So we talk for too long. <laughs> oh gosh, I know we could we could we could literally talk about this this till the cows come home. You know, it's just um, but yeah. In fact, you just thank your lucky stars that I'm not on steroids because if I were on steroids, <laughs> I really would be talking for you know for England literally. But um, no, joking apart. No, thank you, thank you for giving me the opportunity to, you know, to talk about you know things and and my, my situation and no, yeah. thank you Mary no, thank you it's been a pleasure to have you on so thank you all for listening to Rad Chat your hosts today have been myself Jane McNamara and Nam and Jolka Anderson if you're utilizing the podcast for CPD purposes consider the reflective questions are posted along with all the resources and literature that we've discussed to receive your accredited CPD certificate please complete the Google form linked with the podcast our next guest to feature will be Mariad Daly on her role as a therapeutic radiographer her amazing PhD research and running. So thank you all and take care.